good morning, Strong Tower. It's good to be in the house of the Lord with our family today. Uh, if you're new around here, we want to welcome you again. We're glad you could be with us. My name is Ben. I'm the lead pastor here. Uh, if you want to turn in your Bibles, we're going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 21 this morning. Uh, I think last week I, I tried to cover seven or eight chapters in one sermon. I'm not doing that today. Praise the Lord. The church said amen. Amen. Uh, just a few verses, chapter 21, verses 15 through 22. As you're turning there, again, if you're new around here, uh, we want to welcome you uh, to the welcome party that's right after church. It's the first Sunday of every month, so if you're able to make it uh, right after church for about 15 minutes, we'll have uh, just a time for you to get to know a little bit about our church and meet some of our leaders. It's right after church in the gym next door, so if you're able to stick around for 15 minutes, that is today. Uh, 2 Samuel chapter 21, uh, before we read the word, let us take a moment to pause and settle our hearts in silence. Hear the reading of God's word. There was war again between the Philistines and Israel. And David went down together with his servants, and they fought against the Philistines. And David grew weary. And Ishbibanab, one of the descendants of the giants, whose spear weighed 300 shekels of bronze, and who was armed with a new sword, thought to kill David. But Abishai, the son of Zariah, came to his aid and attacked the Philistine and killed him. Then David's men swore to him, You shall no longer go out with us to battle, lest you quench the lamp of Israel. And after this, there was again war with the Philistines at Gob. Uh, then Sibekai, the Hushathite, struck down Saph, who was one of the descendants of the giants. And there was again war with the Philistines at Gob. And, the, and Elhanan, the son of Jar Oregon, the Bethlehemite, struck down Goliath the Gittite, the shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. And there was again war at Gath, where there was a man of great stature who had six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot, 24 in number, and he also was descended from the giants. And when he taunted Israel, Jonathan the son of Shimei, David's brother, struck him down. These four were descended from the giants in Gath, and they fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. I want to tag our text today, winning in weakness, winning in weakness. Let's pray before we dive in. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, that you have spoken to us. And Lord, we ask that you now would prepare our hearts to receive what you have for us. May our hearts be inflamed to, to love you more. May we love you with all of our hearts, soul, mind, and strength, becoming more and more like your son, Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Shizo Kanakuri was a Japanese marathon runner. He completed the, uh, the qualifying trials in the 1912 Olympic Games. And when he was qualifying, he actually broke a world record. And so he, he breaks the world record to qualify, and he gets invited to represent Japan as one of only two Japanese athletes in that year's Olympics. 
And so he decides, you know, I'm, I'm going to go, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make the trip, and this, this is the trip. Listen, it's an 18-day journey. It took him, he had to get all the way across by boat, and then when he got there, he had to get there by train. And so by the time he gets to the 1912 Olympics, he's exhausted. He planned ahead thinking, this is going to be exhausting, I need to give myself rest, and so he gave himself five days of rest. Well, it didn't turn out to be enough. As he began the race, he uh, starts running in the race, and about halfway through, he mysteriously disappears in the race. This is a true story. He's, he, along the way, somehow lost consciousness. They think it's because he was weakened by this long journey from Japan. And so uh, someone took him to the side and gave him some care and some help. And so they, they pull him out of the race. And get this, he never told any of the race authorities that he left. And so when it gets to the end of the race, where is Kanakuri? He He disappeared. They had no idea where he was. He never called, never, never checked in, never, you know, didn't send him a text message, didn't f- Facebook it, he didn't do any of that stuff. So no one knew where he was for 50 years. They thought he disappeared. And then in 1967, they find out he's living in Japan near where he was before, and so they invite him to come back to finish his marathon race. And so he decides, you know what, I'm going to do it. I'm going to go, I'm going to complete the race. And he ran the race, he completed the race. This is what his time was. His official time was 54 years, 8 months, 6 days, 5 hours, 32 minutes, and 20 seconds. When they interviewed him after the race, this is what he said. It was a long run. (laughs) Along the way, I got married, had 6 children, and 10 grandchildren. I mean, he may not have won the race, but he sure did finish the race. Now, some people, when they hear that, they think, well, that, that, that's a failure. You know, 54 years is not the best time in a marathon. You know, this, this is a failure. Even though he finished the race, many of us would look at us or look at it and think, that's a failure. That's a failure because, I mean, we just love winning. We love winners. I mean, think about the people that we celebrate in our society. I mean, we, we celebrate the winners. You, you probably, along the way, have celebrated people that, that are the fastest or uh, the, the, the strongest or the wealthiest or the fittest or, or whatever it may be, but you've celebrated the person who was the best, the winner. I mean, at your job, in, in some form or fashion, they probably celebrate those who sold the most or achieved the most or did the most or whatever it is in your job, they, they probably celebrate whoever the winners were. And you think about maybe in your family when you grew up, many of us grew up in families that, that your parents had high standards and, and maybe, maybe their standards were maybe just a little too high. If you didn't get all A's, it wasn't good enough. You know, they, they, they look at B's and C's as somehow a failure. Right? Or, or, or maybe in the church, you know, it, churches are the worst of this. Churches, we celebrate the biggest churches. They, they publish articles every year on the, on the fastest growing churches. I mean, what if they publish articles on the slowest growing church or, or, or the church that's in the quickest decline? Like we, we, we don't think about that. We, we, we don't care about that. We, we don't want to celebrate that. We celebrate the strong, the powerful, the wealthy, the big. Because we hate, this is why, that we hate weakness. 
I mean, I'm convinced more and more that there's something about the human heart that we are just allergic to weakness. We, we will do whatever it takes to, to separate ourselves from it, to, to be distant from it, to deny it in ourselves, to, to run away from it. We, we, we don't want to be around weakness. We don't want to admit weakness. We, we hate Weakness. In fact, in our church, uh, we have five core values. If you've been in the, the new members class, or you probably even see it in the foyer in there, but we, we call them our five motives. And one of the motives is humility. And uh, it's the one that always gets the most questions. Because on it, we, we define humility with this simple sentence. We say, we embrace our weakness and we take the low place. And people, when they hear that, they say, you value weakness? What is wrong with you? You you embrace weakness. I mean, it, it is the, the number one out of all five that, that gets kind of that turned head that says, huh? And he, here's the reason. It, it's, it doesn't fit into how people think about life and how we think about our faith. But here's the irony of that. The irony is God does his greatest work through weakness. Even though we may be allergic to it, there's something about God that God is drawn to it. God is drawn to weakness. God loves weakness, and he loves to do his best work in that weakness. And so today, as we're, we're making our way through 2 Samuel, we're coming to the end, and, and David is at the end of his race. Right? We're coming to the end of David's life, and, and David has been running, just like Conor Curry, for a very long time. This is a long race. This is David coming to the end of a life full of, of heartache and pain and difficulty and victory and celebration, all of that. And as David comes to the end of his race, he's finishing not in strength, but in weakness. He's finishing in weakness. And, and the story we just read, actually, it mirrors the beginning of David's life. If you remember the beginning of David's life, even if you're not familiar with the Bible, you've probably heard of David and Goliath. And so we're introduced to David as, as a young, strong, courageous man who's fighting giants, right? And now at the end of his life, there's a parallel. Now David is old, and he's tired, and he's weak, and he's fighting giants. But it's completely different. It's completely different. He, he is at the end of this epic marathon, and we see him not in strength, but in weakness. And here, here is where God does his best work in David's life. Here is where you see David thriving, but it's in weakness. And so in David and in all of us, we see God achieve his greatest work. And so that's what I want to look at today for a few minutes. How does God achieve his best work in us through weakness? Let's first look at embracing weakness. If you're taking notes, this is the first point, embracing weakness. Look at verse 15. This is how it begins. It says, There was war again between the Philistines and Israel, and David went down together with his servants, and they fought against the Philistines. And David grew weary. And Ishbi Benab, one of the descendants of the giants, whose spear weighed 300 shekels of bronze and who was armed with a new sword, thought to kill David. Now, pause there for a moment. David and the Philistines are now at war again, right? But now it's not just David and the Philistines, it's David and the Philistines and their giants. Now, who in the world are these giants? Uh, to be honest with you, we don't know. To be honest with you, uh, there's scholars who've been debating this for centuries. How, how do we make sense of this? The Hebrew term is the Rephalim. Uh, how does, how does, who are these people? Where do they come from? 
I'll leave it to your curiosity. There, there, there is a lot of debate out there. Who are these people? But what is clear in the text, because the text doesn't tell us exactly who they are, what's clear is they're scary. What's clear is these people are larger than life, big guys who could crush you. And so now the Philistines are sending their giants to come fight Israel. And now what you have is kind of this scene that's set up where it's Goliath all over again. And when David hears about the giants coming, I mean, you could just imagine, this is old David. David's like, yeah, let me at him. Give me my slingshot and my five stones. I'm, I'm, I'm going to get after this guy. This giant doesn't know what's coming for him. And so David goes out to war with his men, and uh, you can imagine this older man out there fighting in the battle, thinking he can still take on the giants. And when he gets there, the Bible says that he grows weary, or, or the word is he, he grows weak, he's tired, he, he realizes these aren't my glory days anymore. This is not the David that we met in 1 Samuel, this is the David in 2 Samuel, and so Abishai, his nephew, comes to his rescue, and Abishai arrives in verse 17. It says, But Abishai, the son of Zariah, came to his aid and attacked the Philistine and killed him. And then David's men swore to him, You shall no longer go out with us to battle. You hear that? Lest you quench the lamp of Israel. In other words, translation, David, it's time to sit down. David... It's time to embrace your weakness. It's time to embrace your limits because you are limited. So we embrace our weakness, listen to this first, as the gift of limits. The gift of limits. In 2, Samuel, or 2 Corinthians 12, actually, you see the Apostle Paul kind of wrestling with this same thing. Uh, the Apostle Paul was this incredible evangelist and apostle who planted all these churches around the Mediterranean area. And he, uh, in a point of his life, he, he's trying to wrestle with his own weakness, and he goes to God with this weakness. And he says, God, remove this weakness from me. Now, we're not exactly sure what it was. It's some kind of ailment. It could be uh, physical. It could be emotional. It could be a spiritual ailment. Whatever it was, Paul calls it his thorn in the flesh. Like, this thing keeps stabbing me in the side. Like, just get rid of it, God. Take it out of my life. Would you do something about it? And you know what God says to him? No. And he says this. He says, my grace is sufficient for you. And then he says something really surprising. This is what he says. I want you to hear this. He says, my power is made perfect in weakness. What? My, my power is made perfect in weakness. Divine power is perfect in human weakness? What, what is this? God, you must be misspeaking. You, you must be wrong. What, what divine power is supposed to do is, is bring human power. It's supposed to make me stronger. It's supposed to make me better. It's supposed to make me successful. It's better in weakness? How does this make sense? And Paul realizes, Paul realizes, he uses this language. He says, it's been given to me. This thorn in my flesh has been given to me. And this is what leads Paul to then say, because of that, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses. I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses. This is the gift. 
this is the gift of weakness, where you can see it, that this is something that God has given me. See, listen, God has given all of us limits, right? First of all, I mean, for everybody, he's given us limits on time. There's never enough time. Right? There's never enough time to do all the things you want to do, whether it's for your job or for your kids or to hang out with your friends or to pray enough or read the Bible or, or accomplish your career goals, whatever it may be. There, there just seems like there's never enough time. And so you're going from one thing to the next, to the next, to the next. And, and you, all the things you're doing to hurry and hurry and hurry, you never make more time. Every single person in this place, we have 168 hours every week. And that's it. It's limited. No matter how much you rush and hurry, you're limited. And in the same way, all of us are limited in our talents or our abilities, right? We, we, you, we, probably, uh, we probably bought into the lie at some point in our life that someone told us you can be anything you want to be. When you grow up, you can be whatever you want to do. If you work hard enough and you, and you, and you, you know, pray hard enough or whatever, you can do it all. Let me tell you, that, that's a myth. I mean, all of us are good at something. But nobody's good at everything. And so there's things that you're, you're not going to be good at. There's things that you're, you're just not made for. And that's okay. You're, you're limited. Right? I mean, I, I could go on and on and on, but, but here's the point. You, you get the point. All of us have limits. Here's where it gets radically countercultural. These limits or these weaknesses, they're gifts. They're gifts. They, they are given to us by the hand of God. I mean, think about that. I mean, we, we, we don't want to hear that. We, we don't want to hear that God has gifted you with your limits. He's gifted you with your weaknesses. right? In other words, it's a gift to you that things didn't work out the way you wanted them to work out. It's a gift to you that you didn't have enough money to do the things that you wanted to do. It's a gift to you that you haven't had all the success that you've dreamed of. Now, why is that a gift to you? Why is that not a threat? Why is that not harmful? In the words of Paul, it's because when we are weak, then we're strong. It, there's something about weakness. Remember I said weakness, we might be repelled by it. We might be allergic to it, but God is actually drawn to it. God is actually drawn to the weakness. He's drawn to it so that in that weakness, we have a, we have a unique experience of God. God is there in the middle of that weakness, giving us supernatural strength, supernatural strength that we would not have if we didn't have that weakness, because we would be living out of our own strength. We'd be living out of our own efforts, out of our own gifts and talents. But it's in the weakness that God says, I'll, I'll meet you right there. And so what would it look like to embrace your weakness? Even, even think about this. This is radical. To boast in your weakness. That means I'm not just tolerating my weakness. I'm not just kind of giving into it, but, but I'm boasting about it. I'm, I'm excited about it. I'm, I'm proud that I'm terrible at that thing. Not because I'm, I, I think I'm better than somebody who doesn't or whatever, but, but because I know in that weakness, that's where God's consistently meeting me. And if I didn't have that thing in my life, I don't know if I would meet with him. I, I don't know if I would know him the way I know him. I don't know if I would love him the way that I love him. It's in the weakness. When you embrace it, God meets you. Now, now how do we take it to the next level? After you embrace it, that there's a, a befriending of weakness. And this is what I want to look at second, befriending weakness. Look at how the story goes next. Verse 18, 
It says, after this, there was again war with the Philistines at Gob. Then Sibekai the Hushathite, I think I'm saying that right, the Hushathite, struck down Saph, who was one of the descendants of the, gen- or the giants. And there was again war with the Philistines at Gob. And Elhanan, the son of jar Oregon, the Bethlehemite, struck down Goliath the Gittite. Now, sidebar, that's not Goliath that David struck down. This is actually, you look at First uh, Chronicles, this is Goliath's brother. Now, scholars are wondering why do they have the same name, but that's a whole other debate. Who knows? Uh, but Goliath the Gittite, a.k.a. Goliath's brother, uh, the shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. I mean, th- this is insane. You-, you think about this. The narrator pe- repeats it four times so you don't miss it. He says there's war again with the Philistines. There's war again with the Philistines. And there's war again with the Philistines. And there's war again with the Philistines. He wants you to see that what's happening with David is not uh, just like a bad day with the Philistines. He, he wants you to see this, this is something that David had to embrace for a long time. This, this is a weakness that David didn't just have a bad day. David was changing the way he viewed his life. And God keeps sending these people into their life. And, and, and the, the Philistines, each time they come to war, they send another giant. They send another giant, and every time, the, these giants are, are bigger and, and nastier and, and, and more violent. In fact, listen to the last one, the, the unnamed one in verse 20. It says, and there was again war at Gath, there it is again, where there was a man of great stature who had six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot, 24 in number, and he also was descended from the giants. And when he taunted Israel, Jonathan, the son of Shimei, David's brother, struck him down. You catch the the path of the story. There's four giants, and for every giant, there's a giant killer. There's four giants, and for every giant, there's a friend of David who comes to his rescue to fight for him. See, in other words, when, when David needed friends, he had them. When David was in his weakness and he needed someone to fight for him, he had people at his side who were willing to step up and fight for him. This is friendship in his weakness. See, we befriend weakness through friendship. Through friendship. Let me ask you this. Who are your friends? Or to ask it another way, who, who are your giant killers? Right? We, we live during one of the loneliest times in recent human history where, where we, don't, we don't even know how to have friends anymore, let alone few of us have them. We don't even know where to start. We don't know how to relate to someone. We don't know how to ask good questions. We have a hard time trying to figure out where do I meet people? What do I do? How do I get into someone's life? How do they get into my life? And so a lot of us are really confused and a lot of us are really lonely. And so the question is, who are the friends that you have? Like, are they the kind of people who would fight giants in your life? But here's the hard truth. Here's the hard truth. You need those friends before the giants show up. Right? In other words, right now, you might not feel the urgency for that. You're like, yeah, life's going okay. Things are all right. I mean, it's tough. I'm stressed. But it's not, there's no giants in my life. Now's when you need the friends. So when the giants show up, you have them. Right? When you have people in your life who can, who can be there for you to fight for you, now you've got people, when the giant of depression shows up, they can fight. When the giant of your addiction shows up, they can fight. When the giant of your struggling marriage shows up, they can fight. And so you got to ask yourself, who is in my life that could actually fight for me? 
But then turn it around. What giants are you killing for others? What giant are you killing for others? I've said this before and I'll keep saying it. The best way to have friends is to become a friend. It's to become a friend. Now, can I just say as your pastor, give me a little pastoral liberty here. There are so many people in churches who, who hate what I just said. And, and we don't say it, we, we just live it. What, what people in churches say is, no one talks to me, no one reaches out to me, no one knows me. And, and God forbid, I hope that's not your experience. I hope that there are people who love you and have reached out to you and have cared for you. But listen, the, the kind of friend you're looking for, most likely you're going to have to be that friend for them. Don't wait. Don't, don't sit back and wait for someone to come to you. David's friends didn't wait. He's, he's getting his butt kicked by a giant, and no one's sitting back waiting, I wish David would befriend me. No, they, they just decide, I'm going to go fight for that guy. I'm going to go fight for him. I'm going to get into his life, and where he is weak, I'm going to be strong so that I can fight where he needs help. And so you got to ask yourself, who are the people in your life? You can just decide for them. Like, don't wait for them to decide. You just decide. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fight for that person. I'm going to show up in their life. I'm going to pray for them. I'm going to fight for their marriage. I'm going to fight for their, their success. I'm going to fight for their spiritual life. I'm going to be there when they're struggling. I'm going to call them. I'm going to check on them. I'm going to invite them to everything I'm doing. I'm going to decide for that person. That's who I'm going to fight for. I mean, let me tell you, that, that is the vision for connect groups. Like we, we have connect groups at our church, and, and, and it's our, our small groups. And, and connect groups sometimes can turn into just, yeah, I've got a Tuesday night meeting. You know, we show up, we eat dinner together, we go home, and we don't, you know, nothing really happens. And that's fine if that's where it starts. If it starts as this is a place where you show up once a week, but I want you to look around your connect group this week and look around and say, these are the people I'm going to fight for. These are the people I'm going to fight for, whether they want me to or not. I'm going to pray for them, and I'm going to reach out to them, and I'm going to invite them over, and I'm going to ask them hard questions, and I'm going to get into their life, and where they are weak, I can be strong, and listen, where I'm weak, they can be strong, but why can't it start with you? But why can't it start with you? This is what happens in friendship. When I say I'm weak, and you say you're weak, now our mutual weakness comes together, and there's a deep friendship. There's a deep friendship. But if in my weakness, I'm waiting for you to be strong, and I'm not willing to be vulnerable with my weakness, or I'm not willing to share my strength because I view relationship as just people pouring into me, and people meeting my needs, and people making me feel good, it's not going to be a friendship. It's not going to be a friendship. But I promise you, Imagine what would happen in your life if you just said, I'm going to fight for those people. I'm going to fight for them. I'm going to come to their side. I'm going to do it, whatever I can to make sure they thrive. I mean, that would radically change your life, but it would radically change our church. I mean, I'll be honest with you. I know like a handful of people who live that way. I mean, what if that became common? If we just say, this is how I view relationships. I, I am going to pursue their best. I'm going to pursue their best. Think about that. 
This, this is what helps you embrace your weakness. Because now you know as I embrace my weakness, I have friends who are there. I have friends who are with me in my weakness. And as we learn to embrace our weakness and we befriend weakness, uh, there's this last step of overcoming weakness. Look at verse 22. Look at verse 22. It says this, These four were descended from the giants in Gath, and they fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. Now the narrator gives kind of a summary statement and a climax, but you can almost miss it if you're not looking for it. Because listen, when you read it, it, it reads like a boring historical report. Like, okay, there were four giants, four guys died, now we're moving on to the next story. But did you catch what it said at the end? They fell by the hand of David. Now wait a minute. David's been on the couch the whole time. David didn't lift a finger. Last time David went to battle, they told him to sit down because he almost got killed. And then at the end of all these giants dying, they say they fell at the hand of David. What is this? This is not a typo. This is not a mistake in the Old Testament. This is not a mistake in the Bible. This is covenantal language. It's covenantal language. In other words, what it's saying is that even though David didn't do anything in, in the work, in the fight, he still gets all the credit because they won for him. In other words, uh, David is victorious through their vicarious victory. In other words, where he's weak, he still wins because they won. Oh, let me, let me tell you this words. We, we overcome weakness by someone else winning. That's how it works. The, the covenant theology of the Old Testament and the New Testament, it gives us this principle. In other words, you go all the way back to the Garden of Eden, and you have Adam, who's our first father. Adam is the father of all humanity, and he represented all of us in the Garden. Adam, as St. As Augustine said, had all of us in his loins. We, we were there in the Garden when Adam falls. And when Adam falls, when he fails and he goes into sin, all of us sin with him. All of us. When he fails, we fail. When he sins, we sin. And so now, because of Adam, all of us receive this. This is what Romans 5 says. It says in verse 12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, that's Adam, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. You catch that? In other words, because Adam sinned, all of us have sinned. He represented me. He was our covenant head. He was your covenant head. We've all inherited his sin, his failure, his weakness, all of it. Now, you might object and you say, wait a minute. How am I guilty for what that man did? Wait a minute. That, that doesn't sound fair. Let me, let me prove it to you. You believe it. Let, let me prove it to you. In 1962, uh, President Kennedy stood at a podium Massive crowd, 40,000 onlookers at Rice University, and he aimed to bolster support for the space program. You've probably heard clips of this famous speech as he gave his vision for what it would look like to get a man on the moon. And he famously asked these questions. He said, some may ask, why the moon? Why choose this as our goal? And they may well ask, why climb the highest mountain? Why, 35 years ago, fly the Atlantic? Why does Rice play Texas? He said, we choose to go to the moon. And he set 
this unthinkable timeline. By the end of the decade, we are going to the moon. And so now the, the race to the moon is on, and they, they have to figure out a way to get there. And so NASA gets to work, and they're trying to figure out how are we going to get there, how are we going to get there. And the question is not only will we do it, but could we do it? Is this even possible? And then, of course, as you know, uh, looking back on history, in July of 1969, Neil Armstrong and their crew stepped foot on that gray, powdery surface of the moon. And when they do it, listen, this is the point. When they do it, we invite back these astronauts who did the impossible, and they, they throw the biggest parties with the biggest parades, the biggest ticker tape parade in history in Manhattan as they're going down the roads. But why? Why does the whole nation celebrate what a few people did? Here's why. Because it wasn't a celebration just of their victory. It became our victory. In other words, we made it to the moon. None of us landed on the planet. None of us in this room have probably left the planet, or landed on the moon, I should say. None of us have probably left the planet, and yet we did the unthinkable. None of us risked our lives in that, in that occasion, but we stepped on that surface. Why? Because we had victory because he had victory. You catch that? In other words, if we enter into weakness by another, we also overcome weakness by another. If we fail in our covenant head, we also win in our covenant head. This is what Romans 5 goes on to say. Even though the first is true, the second is also true. Therefore, as one trespass led to the con condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous." Let me summarize it for you. The bad news is in Adam we fail, but in the good news is in Jesus we win. In Jesus we win. Overcoming our weakness has to do with having a substitute for us, someone who will win vicariously for us, someone who will take on the giants and beat them in our weakness. This is the gospel. Jesus has overcome our weakness. Jesus has overcome our failures. Jesus is Christ, our conqueror, defeating all our enemies for us. Jesus does it in the most surprising way. How does Jesus defeat the giants of sin and misery? Through weakness. It's through weakness. See, like David and his men, Jesus was on the cross being mocked and taunted. If you are the Christ, come down. If you are the Christ, prove yourself. If you are the Christ, defend yourself. Just like the giants, they're taunting Jesus. But praise God, Jesus never gets off that cross until his last breath. He's, de or he's defeating sin by becoming our sin. He defeated suffering by enduring our suffering. He defeated death by taking on our death. Jesus defeats the giants of sin, suffering, and death all as our covenant head so that in Christ we have the victory. In Christ, as Paul said, we are more than conquerors. In Christ, even in our weakness, we have overcome. We have won the battle. We have seen the victory. So that by faith, the victory is ours as if it happened by our own hands. As if it was us there. In Christ, we were on the cross. In Christ, we were in the grave. In Christ, we rose from the grave. In Christ, we have every victory by faith in Him. That's the good news of the gospel. 
The good news of the gospel is that even in our weakness, we win because of what he's done for us. See, the only way to overcome weakness, and I'll close with this, the only way to overcome weakness is through the victorious work of Jesus in your place. That's it. Because all of us are weak. All of us have failed. All of us have sinned. If you look at your life, you have nothing that can beat a giant. But Jesus has everything. He's done it already. He's one for us. And so the question for all of us is, where do we take our weakness? Do we take it to him? Because I think many of us, if you're maybe new to the faith or you've been walking with Christ for a long time and you've come up against a giant that's big and, and scary and new and he, he's got six fingers and six toes and all kinds of spears and weapons and I don't know what to do about this. What, what happens is we think we have to take our strength to the fight. And Jesus says, no, you got it backwards. You, you take your weakness. You take your weakness and I'll bring my strength and I'll win for you. That's the good news of the gospel. We, we take our weakness to him. We confess our sin. We confess our failures. And in our weakness, he says, I, I have all that you need. I have all that you need to defeat every enemy. In fact, I've beat them all already on the cross. And now, now it's just cleanup work. But that's the good news of the gospel is you, you win in weakness, but only in Christ. Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, our great conqueror, our great defender, the one who's overcome all of our sin, all of our suffering, all of our misery, all of our death. Oh, Lord Jesus, we bow our knees to a great conquering king. And we ask that you would, by your spirit, help our hearts to rest in you. May we embrace our weakness rather than deny it. May we confess our sin rather than hide it. May we take all of these things to you, knowing that you're our greatest friend. You're the one who comes alongside us closer than a brother, greater than a friend, and fights for us. Oh, Lord, we have hope that you right now are even beside the Father, at the right hand, interceding for us befriending us, loving us, fighting for us. And so we got, God, we ask that you would encourage us, strengthen us in that. Give us the faith to trust you in it. We pray in Christ's name.